Donald Trump's lawyers seeking out the special counsel. The lead starts right now. Behind closed doors, Trump's legal team sitting down with Jack Smith, what Trump himself is saying about that meeting and his own defense. Plus, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell back on the Senate floor today after freezing in front of reporters mid-sentence. Sources tell CNN the 81-year-old has fallen three times this year alone, not just the one time that was publicly reported. And the emergency warning from America's largest power grid as the extreme heat settles in over some of the biggest cities in the country. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Caitlin Collins, in for Jake Tapper today. We start with our law and justice lead. No indictments are now expected today from the grand jury that is investigating efforts to overturn the 2020 election. That's according to an official with the district court here in Washington. Although we should note, of course, grand juries are secret, and it's not exactly clear what this means for the special counsel's investigation. But this news comes just hours after Donald Trump's legal team met with the special counsel, Jack Smith. Sources tell me that Trump's attorneys weren't there in that meeting today to really argue the facts of a potential case, but instead to try to argue that they believe an indictment would cause more turmoil turmoil in the country. That's an argument that Trump himself repeated over on Truth Social, saying, quote, My attorneys had a productive meeting with the DOJ this morning, explaining in detail that I did nothing wrong, was advised by many lawyers, and that an indictment of me would only further destroy our country. I should note, sources tell CNN that meeting lasted about an hour and ended without Trump's team getting any guidance on the timing of a potential indictment. Trump himself was originally against any kind of sit-down between his attorneys and the special counsel's team, I'm told, really believing that these charges and a third indictment was already inevitable. Let's get straight to two of the best-sourced reporters on this story, CNN's Caitlin Polance, who is outside that federal courthouse here in Washington, and CNN's Paula Reed here with me in studio. Caitlin, I, we have been kind of watching all day since this morning when the grand jury started meeting, waiting to see if today would be the day. Walk us through this now that we have been told no indictments are expected today. Yeah, Caitlin, that is the word out of a court official today, that there weren't any indictments that were handed up by the grand jury here through any judge, and there aren't any expected today, but there's no indication at this time that we are not in the end stage of this investigation, at least the portion that has resulted in the Justice Department informing Donald Trump he's very likely to be charged here. And that's because this grand jury has been at work for months. They have heard from so many witnesses from all different parts of Trump and his circles, and even into uh, the realms of election officials, state officials across battleground states where Donald Trump was trying to overturn the vote after the 2020 election. All of that becomes evidence. And then you have this special counsel. They have continued to work. They sent out that target letter 11 days ago to Donald Trump saying, yes, he is very likely to get indicted also outlining to him exactly which charges he's very likely to face, at least some of them, very hefty charges that the Justice Department is looking at here. And then we had the grand jury come in last week and hear from some witnesses. Today, they came into the courthouse typically on the same time that they normally do. We did not have any indication that they were hearing from witnesses, but there were several prosecutors here at the federal courthouse from the special counsel's office team working with that grand jury. Their proceedings are secret. A lot of things could have happened behind those closed doors. But what we know right now is we just don't have 
an indictment at this time that is public. Caitlin? Yeah, and as we wait, of course, that grand jury was meeting. Paula, Trump's legal team is also here in Washington. They were meeting with Jack Smith's team, we were told, for about an hour. I mean, what are they saying now that we're hearing no indictments expected today? Like everyone else, they're waiting and watching. And understandably, they're likely expecting their client will be indicted. Their client has received a target letter. He has received an invitation to go before the grand jury, an invitation wisely, arguably. He declined. And then, of course, they're meeting with a special counsel. And as you're hearing from your sources, right, they didn't expect that they'd be able to change the hearts and minds of prosecutors. They believe this is inevitable, but they're hoping to delay it because that, Caitlin, has been the entire strategy for the Trump legal team long before he became president, now a former president, but especially now as he's running once again for the White House. If he is indicted in this case, they are going to try to delay this until after the 2024 election. Will they be successful? It's impossible to know until we see a possible indictment and really get a sense of the charges. But we absolutely expect every day, every week adds up and makes it easier and easier for them to make the case that this should be pushed until after the country decides who the next president will be. Yeah, we're seeing them do that with documents. And Caitlin, Obviously, now that we've heard no indictments are expected today, the grand jury typically meets Tuesdays and Thursdays. I mean, what's the sense of uh, of what tomorrow could look like or Monday or where this really goes from here? Well, again, secret grand juries, court being unpredictable. There could always be a situation where a grand jury is called in on an odd day that they're not usually here. There is also the possibility the grand jury had some feedback for prosecutors today uh, or that there was some planning about how the next couple weeks would would go for them. So we just really don't know how it's coming together. And then the other side of this is there is a side where the Justice Department itself Uh, is very likely looking again at what they're planning to do here. And we don't know exactly what those deliberations look like, but some of the questions that have been out there for a long time that we all have been asking is, how does this case get shaped? Is it a case just against Donald Trump himself? He's the one that we know of who received that target letter. Are there other people? Are there other legs of the investigation? Are there spinoff cases or cases against other people Trump was talking to. And so we just don't know how they're going to end up pulling this together and asking the grand jury for an approval of. Yeah, we'll wait to see what that looks like. Caitlin Polans, Paula Reed, thank you both here to talk about this and the confusion surrounding this. CNN's chief legal analyst, Laura Coates, and CNN special correspondent, Jamie Gangel. Laura, I know you watch Truth Social closely. Trump posted <laughs> to my life. Are you kidding me? I know you have your alerts fired up. <laughs> I mean, this post from Trump today, I think, you know, you kind of got to read each line of it. But the one that stood out the most to me where he said that they explained in detail he did nothing wrong and was advised by many lawyers. It sounded like a little bit of a defense, you know, that he was getting a lot of advice from attorneys at the time about overturning the election. Of course, and you hone in on the home in on the proper phrase there of course because it's a way of distancing himself when you know that intent is going to be such a big part of any case to be proven against the former president of the United States. What was he thinking? Was he guided differently? Was he acting at the behest of counsel or somebody else? Had he delegated the conversations away in some meaningful notion? All of this is going to be important to say, listen, hey, if I have been advised by the top legal minds of the country, he will tell you, then clearly I'm just following what they're saying. It's a kind of sense of they ordered the code red and I'm following it. What it tells you, though, is also him trying to, I think, weave in a defense in the sense of 
I believed this because I was advised by those who would be actually knowledgeable and experts in the field. That will weigh in. And of course, as they rightly point out in our excellent reporting, grand juries are finding probable cause. They're not finding beyond a reasonable doubt. And when you present to a grand jury the possible universe of charges, they're going to want to know, can you prove it? Is it a knowing standard? Is it that they were willfully blind in some way, that they had to have some circumstantial or specific evidence of intent? That's all part of the building process. And statements like that tell you that he's well aware of the consequences. Yeah, and believes an indictment is coming. Mm -hmm. I mean, if that indictment hasn't happened yet, Jamie, but what are you hearing from people? I know you're talking to a lot of people about what that looks like if and when there is one. So so let's first say if, because we, we don't know yet, but the target letter certainly takes us there. So I've spoken to a number of former Justice Department sources who have been following the case very closely. And, and this is their, I, I think, educated look at what to expect. And they said, first of all, expect the indictment if it comes to be, as one said, the mother of all speaking indictments. They expect it to be extensive, great detail. They want to see who else is going to be named in this indictment. Are we going to have unindicted co-conspirators? Can we tell whether people have been cooperating who were in Trump's inner circle? How does Mark Meadows fit into this case? Mm. His former White House chief of staff, who was in the room and there for, uh, for so much of it, And then the last thing they've said, and and they've been saying this repeatedly since the Target letter, they expect this case to be not just very strong, but to be what they say is beyond a reasonable doubt plus. Why? Because it's the former president of the United States. And the idea, Laura, that this meeting happened today, Jack Smith was in the room, we're told, I was told that they weren't walking in there to say your facts are wrong on this, Mm -hmm. but to say broadly an indictment against the president shouldn't happen. I mean, I assume usually these meetings don't change the minds of prosecutors about bringing charges. No. I mean, first, just so everyone knows, usually a special counsel or even the U.S. attorney, him or herself, is not in the room for everyday conversation between defendants and the prosecutors who are actually going to try the cases. This is extraordinary in and of itself. Number two, Defense counsel would not want to create an opportunity to perhaps convey facts that they don't know are already known or were not already part of the contemplation. So going and saying, hey, you've got it all wrong. Here's actually what happened would actually be a problem. But finally, the idea of trying to persuade the prosecution after months and months of a grand jury subpoena power that allowed them to have witnesses come in, to have corroboration, to have subpoena power of documents and other things— would really be something extraordinary because the evidence itself is supposed to speak. Finally, when you're talking about when you have lawyers who are more likely to be transactional in terms of negotiations and business deals or even civil litigation, their whole MO, I've practiced in that space before, has been to, we already have a meeting of the minds, let's now massage the contours of the deal, we both have a common goal. That's not the case in criminal prosecution. The defendant's goal is not to be the defendant. And the prosecutor's goal is to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. And the weight of having your name after United States versus gives unbelievable amounts of leverage such that I, as a prosecutor, need not entertain the meeting at all. But that they did is extraordinary. Yeah. And Jamie, you mentioned Mark Meadows. Right. Laura's talking about all the witnesses that have gone before. That. I mean, there's a lot of high profile people who were around Trump in these final days that we know have gone and spoken to Jack Smith's team already. Right. There have been dozens and dozens of witnesses. Let's just look 
top White House officials like Mark Meadows, family members, Jared Kushner, his son-in-law, people from the campaign who were involved in this from, for, for months and months. Uh, we have Dan Scavino, White House counsel Pat Cipollone. There are people who went in also and took the fifth. What I'm curious about is who's cooperating and, and who maybe from that inner circle told them something they didn't know. Yeah, that's a key question. And obviously, we hope to learn more on that. Right. Thank you both. Donald Trump said today that another indictment, as we noted there, would destroy the country. But could it also embolden his 2024 presidential campaign? Plus, the health of minority leader Mitch McConnell under scrutiny after three falls in that troubling moment where he froze before reporters. Today, there are new calls for transparency from within his own party. And a major development just in about Bronny James, the 18-year-old son of LeBron James, days after he went into cardiac arrest at basketball practice. Back now with our Law and Justice lead. Today, Special Counsel Jack Smith himself was in the room with Donald Trump's attorneys. It has now been 11 days since Trump got a target letter indicating that charges could potentially come in the Special Counsel's probe into his efforts to overturn the 2020 election. We've got more of our panel here with me now. Alice, let me start with you, because obviously we've been watching Republicans react to news of this indictment looming today on Capitol Hill. I mean, how how are they bracing for their frontrunner to be potentially indicted again? Well, there's really two different wings of the Republican Party on this. His base is going to stand by him. We can have an indictment seven days a week and twice on Sunday until the Iowa caucuses, and they will stand by him. They view this as overreach of the DOJ. They view this as politicization. They view this as weaponization against Donald Trump. And they are not going to change. But then there are others who are more rational thinking and are looking at this. What are the facts at hand? What is he being accused of? Did he try and stop the certification of the election? Did he try to put together a fake set of electors and overturn the election? It's hard to dispute those facts. So rational Republicans are looking at this and realizing, look, we have options. There are people that support our election process and are not going to try and thwart the election process. So um, rational Republicans are recognizing the fact there are other options out there for uh, Republican candidates. And one indictment is, is enough for them to try and look, look somewhere else. Well, Ashley, that's what I was looking at. You know, the idea of when we were kind of going back with Paula and Caitlin on the details of will they or won't they today. I mean, just thinking to the idea that this could happen and that we are on the verge of this would be such a historic indictment because it's of a former president for trying to hang on to to his grip to power. Yeah, I mean, we've already had two indictments of Donald Trump, so I agree with Alice that those who are supporting him are staying, sticking with him. But this third indictment, what it is about, and it was really about the ability for our democracy to survive. And you would hope that if this, this third one would kind of be the nail in the coffin to get Donald Trump out of the race, But it's not. It is historical. It is important because if he ends up being the Republican nominee and potentially the next president of the United States, what does that mean for our country? What does that mean for our democracy? What does that mean for our institutions? We already saw what his what he is uh, capable of doing on January 6th. Do we need a January 6th 2.0? I don't think so. And we hope that the Republican Party and its voters actually realize that as well. And Laura, we've seen what the target letter that we talked about, what that looks like, the idea that it listed 
conspiracy to defraud the United States, obstruction of an official proceeding. And then there was that one, the Reconstruction Era civil rights charge, where it's a crime to threaten or intimidate anyone when it comes uh, to the election and their constitutional privileges. If and when it comes down, I mean, do you think it's just going to be those three? Could it have been broader? What are you going to be looking for? Well, the target letter need not be totally inclusive of every contemplated charge. It's only supposed to give notice, and it's not even required. It's suggested that you do so, and part of maybe a, a hint at a guideline, particularly in a case of this stature. But remember, we're talking about January 6th. A lot of the bulk I would expect to see of any charges would be things that predated that actual date, that being the culmination, what happened on Capitol Hill at Congress that day. But January 6th, the investigation has really been about what happened prior to the election, the preparation to try to sow the doubt and to plant those seeds already, who you're going to work with and conspiring possibly to do that, just that, and what happened after those moments. And so look for a far more expansive investigation. Let's not forget In a way, America has seen an investigation and a kind of trial on this very issue in the form of a congressional impeachment hearing. And so we know that we've seen that data out in the public square. What has been added to that to have a delay of months and months? What more was gleaned in a criminal prosecution? Because don't forget, if you're faced with a subpoena from Congress, but you don't have a chance to go to a chance, may not go to jail at the end of it. Um, and a prosecutor comes and says, here's my subpoena, suddenly you talk a little bit more than you would in front of Congress. Yeah, I think Mike Pence is <laughs> yep. example number one Absolutely. of that. And given that, I mean, the idea that it's not just likely Trump. I mean, when you are reading the tea leaves here, following that roadmap that we've been provided, the idea is that there are likely going to be co-conspirators here. I mean, if there is a conspiracy charge, that's at least what Trump's legal team has been looking at and asking around if others have gotten target letters here. And and those people, to Laura's point, don't necessarily have to get target letters. It would be a courtesy, but they, they don't have to do it. Look, there are lots of names out there. John Eastman, the lawyer who came up with this plan and suggested it to Trump. Jeff Clark, who is over at the Justice Department. Uh, other people from the campaign who were involved in this, Rudy Giuliani, uh, you know, Sidney Powell, Jen Ellis, Cleta Mitchell. There was a whole group around Trump pushing him to do this. And I, I think one of the things that, you know, we saw with the January 6th committee, which laid out a roadmap, was Trump was repeatedly told there was no widespread fraud, mm-hmm. that the election was fair. Chris Krebs, who was in charge of security, got fired. Because he said uh, it was. And yet at every turn, what the January 6th committee pointed out was Trump didn't listen to those people. He didn't listen to Bill Barr, his own attorney general. He listened to the people that were leading him down a road to overturn the election. And people warned him every step of the way it could lead to violence. And I think a lot of the names that you just mentioned there, the Giuliani's, the John Eastman's, the, the Jenna Ellis's, those people who had Trump's ear, when you look at and talk to Republicans on Capitol Hill, it makes them want to go scream into pillows, essentially, thinking <laughs> of those people advising the president. And Will Hurd is running for 2024, but also Dan Crenshaw, another Republican on Capitol Hill. They were asked about the prospect of a third Trump indictment, what it means for their party. And this is what they said today. If the GOP nominates Donald Trump as our nominee to go against Joe Biden, then we are willingly giving four more years to, to Joe Biden. Silly not to say it, it is, but it's, it's 
you know, in a general election, yeah, it makes it, it makes it tougher. Like I don't, I don't know. I hope that doesn't offend anyone to state that fact, but it's pretty obviously true. So, no, it is what it is. I mean, is it pretty obviously true? A lot of Republicans echo exactly what they're saying in private, but they won't say the same thing publicly, which is really uh, dis, you know, disheartening because the facts are, are out there. We understand what they are. And to, to Jamie's point, many people told Donald Trump privately, look, there was no widespread voter fraud. This was a free and fair election. The question will be, and Laura will be the legal expert on this, did Donald Trump really, really believe that this was a, a false election? And did he really believe that he won the election? And that's going to be part of what Jack Smith is trying to uncover. And as more people come forth and provide text and information, I think the truth is really going to come to light. Can, this can is, I just say to that point, yeah. though, there were witnesses who came in and, and spoke both to the committee and to uh, the special counsel who said they had conversations with Donald Trump, where he acknowledged that he understood. There's a famous story about Hope Hicks going in and saying, work on your legacy, move on. And he said, if, you know, if I don't win, there is no legacy. Because for him, what's the worst thing in the world? To be a loser. Yeah. I mean, what's your sense of that? I just think of what the conversation we're having and 2024 candidates being asked if they would pardon Trump if that was the case they were in office compared to Karine Jean-Pierre today being asked about President Biden ever potentially pardoning Hunter Biden and very decisively saying no. Mm-hmm. Well, first, the American public spoke loud and clear in 2020 whether or not Donald Trump believes in it or not and said they did not want any more of his antics. And that is what ensued January 6th. And then in 2022, they spoke again. And while there was supposed to be a red wave, there wasn't because many of the candidates on the ticket were endorsed by Donald Trump and they did not want it. So for the Republicans, those few to come out and say Donald Trump is a disaster to be on the top of the ticket. I don't even think that's courageous. That's just politically savvy at this point. Thank you all for being here. We'll see. Wait and see what happens. Minority leader Mitch McConnell, meanwhile, not the only senator on Capitol Hill facing questions about his health today. Senator Dianne Feinstein also having a questionable moment. She is the oldest member of the U.S. Senate. That's next. And our politics lead, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, back on Capitol Hill today, delivering remarks on the Senate floor, coming after he froze for 23 seconds while speaking with reporters mid-sentence yesterday. Now CNN has learned that McConnell fell three times this year, Two more than we had previously known. Senate's Manu Raju is on Capitol Hill as one senator says McConnell is tougher than a $3 steak. was a moment that shook the Senate. And has Republicans unwilling to answer what used to be a simple question. Will they continue to back Mitch McConnell to serve as their leader? If he ran for leader, he would get the job. Well, I I think that that's speculation that's not necessary right now. Would you support him running for leader again in the new Congress? Well, well, you know, again, it depends on what we it depends on what the situation is and um, and what his condition is at that time. Um, Right now, I think he's a great leader. The 81 year old who led the Senate GOP for the past 16 years and is the longest serving Senate party leader ever has faced scrutiny over his health this year starting in March when he suffered a concussion and broken ribs after falling in a Washington hotel. CNN has learned that McConnell, a survivor of polio who walks with a limp, has fallen multiple times this year, 
including while deplaning at Reagan National Airport in Washington this month and slipping in Helsinki during a February meeting with the president of Finland. One senator who witnessed that fall said, It was also very icy at the time, so and it could have happened to any of us. Were you concerned about his health at that moment? I mean, look, for any of us take a fall. I'm older than 50, so all of us are concerned. An aging Senate is not a new issue. 89-year-old Chuck Grassley needed surgery this year after fracturing his hip. And questions persist over 90-year-old Diane Feinstein and her fitness to serve. Just today, apparently confused about how to vote during a committee meeting. Um, you say aye. Pardon me? Aye. Yeah. Uh, just say aye. Feinstein, though, plans to retire at the end of next year. McConnell is up for re-election in 2026 and recently declined to say to CNN if he would finish his current term or run for a leader in 2025. I was, was concerned yesterday. He said that he got a little overheated, a little dehydrated. That's what it looks like to me. Can you tell his 48 colleagues what happened? I, 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 I well... He should tell us if something else, something bigger is going on. If he does step aside, three top Republicans could vie to succeed him. Do you think that Senator McConnell should run for leader in the new Congress? Well, I mean, the new Congress is 18 months away. I'm trying to figure out how we get the defense authorization bill off the floor today. Now, as for Senator McConnell, is back to business as usual today. He had a breakfast meeting with the Italian prime minister. He gave a speech on the Senate floor. He's been voting all day. And for Senator Feinstein, one of her spokespeople uh, issued a statement saying that she was simply preoccupied at the time the vote was called, which is why she didn't initially vote for it at, at that moment that it was caught on camera. Hmm. Caitlin. Mani Raju, thank you. For more now on this, let's bring in CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, what's your sense uh, of McConnell's additional falls that we've now learned about after seeing what happened yesterday? He is 81 years old. Is that typical? What's your sense? It's it's a lot more common, I think, than people realize. And remember, besides the falls that were just mentioned, back in 2019, he fell and he fractured his shoulder. Uh, You may remember that as well, Caitlin. Mm -hmm. So there have been some significant falls. I, I think that people should realize that once you get over the age of 65 or so, what statistics will show is that one in five people of that age have falls. There are some three million seniors who are, uh, go to emergency rooms or even hospitalized because of falls every year. So add to that his age, add to that uh, the fact that uh, he had polio as a child, so he's always had troubles with his gait. It's, it's not surprising. Uh, they, these falls can be very dangerous, as, as you know. Um, you know, we talk a lot about chronic diseases, heart disease, diabetes. A single fall basically can accumulate a lot of risk into just a split second, which is why they're so concerning, especially in the elderly. Of course. I mean, that's that is the concern. We've heard that even, you know, from the White House and President Biden has yeah. fallen as well. What we heard from Manu's latest reporting is that Senator McConnell's office had not confirmed whether or not he'd been seen by a doctor, what that assessment was. I mean, obviously, Sanjay, you're not treating him. But if you were, what warning signs would you be looking for? What kind of test would you be running? He he clearly had some sort of neurological event. Um, I think everyone could see that. Uh, It was, you know, 30 seconds roughly where he was unable to speak. He recovered quickly, and we saw Manu ask him a question about 12 minutes later, and he said, I'm fine. So something happened, and he recovered from it quickly. I think the, the, t- the types of things you think about, I mean, common things, first of all, just as they've said, dehydration or a medication interaction or just feeling under the weather. But in, you know, in medicine, you have to rule out um, more serious things as well. Was this a mini stroke of some sort? Was it a mini seizure of some sort? 
Don't know, but running scans, perhaps even an EEG uh, to make sure it's not those things, um, that, that is something that you would do. He may have had some of these done even in the past. We're hearing about this specific incident, Caitlin. His doctors may be aware, um, but, but th- those are the types of tests you'd be looking for. Yeah, and Sanjay, on another note, but something that everyone else has also been watching very closely, LeBron James's 18-year-old yeah. son, Bronny James, we are now told that he is out of the hospital after he went into cardiac arrest at basketball practice on Monday. What's your sense of that timeline from that happening on Monday to him now being out of the hospital back at home? It's, it's very favorable, uh, Caitlin, as you might guess. I mean, the, the thing that really struck me initially was that he was in the ICU for a very short time. So they felt that he was stable enough, that his heart function was normal, that they could release him from the ICU. What they've said as part of that statement is that they still, it sounds like the investigation continues. He's probably wearing a monitor to monitor his heart rhythms while he's at home to see if there's any abnormalities. But so far, it sounds like there's nothing serious that they have found and they feel comfortable releasing him. So that that bodes well. You know, fingers crossed, Caitlin, but that certainly bodes well for him. Yeah, we're absolutely all rooting for him. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thank you. Got it. Thank you. Ahead, the tone today from 2024 Republican candidates as their main challenger, Donald Trump, is now facing a possible third indictment. In our politics lead, Republican presidential candidates are on the campaign trail in Iowa as former President Donald Trump is facing a third possible indictment. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, though, made no mention of his opponent's legal trouble today. CNN's Jessica Dean is in Iowa. And Jessica, I know there was one moment where DeSantis mentioned Trump. It just wasn't about the legal issues that he is facing. Exactly. It wasn't anything about the indictment. And frankly, Caitlin, we've talked to voters today. We've been with Governor DeSantis as he's been on this bus tour through rural Iowa. The indictment has just simply not come up here. What has come up from Ron DeSantis is him talking about himself, pitching him to voters as a viable alternative to Donald Trump. And for voters, they're really looking for somebody who can win in 2024. And whoever they think that can be is who they want to support in this primary, in their caucuses, which are now less than six months away. So that moment that he did talk about Trump came uh, when he was speaking to reporters out of his first stop and he was asked, you know, how do you convince people who supported the former president to now support you? And he said, well, in Florida, he won by three, I won by 20. And then he really pivoted to this electability argument, which we've seen him really zero in on as his campaign has undergone a reset. And he really talked about how he was able to win over independent voters in the state of Florida from his first term into his second term. When he ran the second time, that he was really able to run up the score with independents. He said that's what's going to make the difference when it comes to 2024. And he also said that no one gets a mulligan. The Republicans aren't going to get a mulligan. You're either going to get the job done or you're not. Again, that is the pitch that we're now hearing from him. It's something we've heard in the last two months of his campaign, but he really seems to be focusing in on that message, really driving it home as he really tries to make the case to voters both here in Iowa and in other early states and across the country that among all of those 2024 contenders, he's the one that can both beat Donald Trump, but then also beat Joe Biden in 2024, Caitlin. Yeah, of course, whether or not that's true remains to be seen. We will watch Jessica Dean in Iowa. Thank you. In our world lead today, more Israelis on the streets of Tel Aviv in protest, three days after the Israeli government passed the first of a controversial, controversial, I should note, judicial reform law. 
It removes Israel's Supreme Court's ability to override government decisions by ruling them unreasonable, essentially weakening a check on government power. CNN's Wolf Blitzer just spoke with the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. Wolf, I know you pressed him on the fallout that we have seen so clearly in the streets of Israel in recent days. What did he say? I did press him on that, Caitlin. And as you know, the Prime Minister, Prime Minister Netanyahu's judicial overhaul has not only led to mass protests on the streets of Israel, it also has led to a very negative impact on Israel's military, its economy, and on U.S.-Israeli relations, even relations with the American Jewish community. The leadership. I asked the prime minister if he's willing to pay that price for the overhaul now that the Knesset, Israel's parliament, has passed the first part of the plan that would dramatically weaken the Israeli Supreme Court. Here's what he said. We're not trying to weaken the Supreme Court. We're trying to bring balance between the three branches of government, which is the, the essence of democracy. In Israel, over the last uh, 20, 30 years, uh, the Supreme Court arrogated a lot of the powers of the judiciary and the executive. They can basically nullify any decision made. That doesn't happen anywhere on the planet. Uh, and so we're trying to bring it back in line. Uh, and we don't want uh, a subservient court. We want an independent court, but not an all-powerful court. And that's what the corrections that we're doing. I, I think a lot of the uh, things that you described uh, are, you know, are, are in the choir. People are saying it. They're giving indications. But I've been there before. When I made these huge changes in our economy, they said, oh, we'll bring down the economy. Israel has become a juggernaut since. When I uh, did the, when I spoke out against Iran, against the entire world. Mr. Mr. Prime the, Minister, let me, inter- deal, let me interrupt uh, with all due respect. People see it differently now. Mr. Prime Minister, let me interrupt with all due respect. You, of course, control the executive uh, in Israel. Your coalition controls the Knesset, the parliament. You're weakening the Supreme Court. Where are the checks and balances? Well, in Israel, uh, we have the Supreme Court has a lot of checks, but there are no balances. Uh, For example, on the uh, court, on the decision that we passed on reasonableness, understand what that is. It's like uh, uh, the court can nullify a decision any decision by the, uh, the government, by the executive, by saying it's unreasonable, not because it's illegal, not because they're using other checks that they have, plenty of things that they could do. They can nullify an appointment. It's like the Supreme Court would be able to nullify an appointment by President Biden, not by saying that there's a conflict of interest that exists today in Israel, that it's undue process that exists today in Israel, that it's not proportional that exists in, in Israel, but just by saying we don't think this appointment is reasonable. That doesn't exist in America. It doesn't exist in most democracies, not to this scope. And that's the minor correction that we made that is now called the end of democracy. If that's the end of democracy, there are no democracies because none of them have this. I also asked the prime minister about the state of U.S.-Israeli relations and the legal troubles hanging over his one-time ally, Donald Trump. The extended interview, Caitlin, coming up in the next hour right here in the Situation Room. Yeah, and we will absolutely be watching. I mean, it's so interesting to hear him him refer to it as a minor correction, just given, of course, the massive protests that we have seen. We will be watching that full interview next hour with you, Wolf. Thank you. Thank you. The other big story that no one can escape or can get any relief from, it seems like, the extreme heat, the warnings from America's largest power grid operator, at this month sets an alarming and historic record. It is so hot in the United States that America's largest power grid operator has issued an emergency alert 
to make sure the system can handle the surge as millions of people are cranking up their air conditioning. Right now, 45% of the U.S., as you can see here, is under a heat alert. CNN's Gabe Cohen reports this July is already the hottest month ever recorded. It's now the planet's hottest month in human history. We need people to make sure that they're staying hydrated. We need them to stay indoors. 150 million Americans are under heat alerts Thursday, being told to stay inside, driving up demand for cool air, causing a dire strain on the country's largest power grid that covers 13 states and D.C., impacting 65 million people amid this hot weather alert that will last through at least Friday. This after Texas's independent energy grid has faced record demand amid soaring temperatures. The heat wave sent temperatures above 110 degrees for more than three weeks in parts of the southwest, and at least 25 people died from the heat in Arizona alone. It's the heat. The heat causes problems, period. My heart goes out to people who lose their life from heat-related illness or heat stroke. In Texas, officials say scorching temperatures have led to a record spike in medical calls. We're way over already. And in California, the heat is creating conditions for more wildfires. In states as far north as Minnesota, where July is usually in the 80s, the asphalt is now buckling in the heat reaching into the hundreds. Farmers there worry that the temperatures will also destroy their profits. I have a prayer that I hope is answered that our fruit that is still green and pink can actually weather the heat storm. Here in Washington, the mayor declaring a public emergency. You got a cooling towel already. Great, great. Converting city buses into makeshift cooling centers for vulnerable and low-income people without regular access to air conditioning and shelter. Cold water, cold water! It's not unbearable, but... Uh, it's it's tough. It's, it's hard. It, I mean, it wears you down, especially at 61. The Biden White House now addressing the countrywide heat emergency, directing the Labor Department to issue a nationwide heat advisory for workers. But some protections fall on states. We should be protecting workers from hazardous conditions, and we will. And those states where they do not, I'm going to be calling them out. And as we walk the National Mall late this afternoon, if you look around, there just aren't that many people out, perhaps many heeding the warning of emergency officials who have told people over the next couple days, stay inside if you can, stay in the shade and stay cool. They are concerned about people's health as this extreme heat pounds the Northeast here in Washington at this hour, the heat index right around 108 degrees. Yeah, and you can see people are going out to those monuments earlier and earlier trying to, to beat the heat. I saw them out at the Jefferson Memorial yesterday. Gabe Cohen, thank you. Why the Justice Department today has announced an investigation into the city of Memphis, Tennessee, next. The city of Memphis and its police department now facing a federal civil rights investigation. Today, the Justice Department announcing it will focus on the department's use of force, searches and arrests, and whether or not it engages in discriminatory policing. This announcement, of course, comes after the tragic killing of Tyree Nichols back in January. Memphis police officers repeatedly punched and kicked him after a traffic stop. Those officers were fired and are now facing murder charges. Thank you so much for joining me in this hour. Our coverage continues up next with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. 
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.